Father, help us to see and understand John. And help us to understand what he's teaching us about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes and our ears today. John seems to want us to see and to hear and to touch and to to understand you in such a deep way. And I pray you would open up our hearts today. That all of us enters in. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this John that we're studying here is the Apostle John. So the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote First uh, and Second and Third John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Again, that's why it makes sense to take a look at Revelation to get a snapshot of this author of First John. Remember, we first encounter him in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, he is literally in the boat with his dad and his brother, and Jesus passes by. Remember that? I want you to imagine yourself. You're at work. You got your work clothes on. You're closing up shop for the day. You're getting ready to go, and Jesus pops in. He says, hey, listen, uh, drop everything. I want you to come with me. I want you to come with me. Because that is the exact picture of what it looked like when John first encounters Jesus. He's in the boat. Not only is he in the boat, he's in the boat with his dad. Can you imagine the name of the boat? Zebedee and Sons, you know, fishing, outfitters. And they're in there, and they're mending nets, mending nets. Jesus pops up. Hey, listen, son of, sons of thunder, you, John and James, why don't you guys... Come with me. And you know what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4? Immediately, they dropped their nets. They left their nets in the boat, and they left their father in the boat to follow Jesus. That's the first thing we learn about John. Now, listen, that doesn't mean everybody should leave their secular employment. That's not what that's saying. Very few people should leave their secular employment to follow after Jesus. John left because Jesus invited them to come, and he felt the tug to come, right? But the point is that John hears the invitation of Jesus to follow after him. He drops everything. His dad's standing there, and just the hired servants are left. It's not Zebedee and sons. You can imagine it crossed off the side of the boat. Not Zebedee and sons, just Zebedee. Zebedee and servants. We're going to keep keep fishing, but we've lost John and James. And so they head off from there. Remember then, John becomes incredibly connected relationally to Jesus. This is one of the reasons we should listen closely to him. He has incredible experiences with Jesus. So he's part of the inner circle group, this this tight-knit group of the three apostles that are closer even than the other 12 to Jesus. They got to see things like the, the transfiguration where Jesus says, come up with me, come up with me. Just you three, let's go up to the mount. And that's where, remember, Jesus was transfigured. And that, the voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Remember, just the three, they were invited into Jairus' house. His daughter had passed away and was, was dead. The daughter had passed away. And the inner circle, including John, got to see Jesus raise her from the dead. No one else got to see that. Uh, He's not perfect, and we're going to get to that. But listen, he got to see some amazing things. Remember, when everyone was scattered and John left Jesus, 
at the, uh, at the time of the crucifixion. He was in the garden. Remember, Jesus said to the three, the inner circle, come a little closer, come a little further away, come pray with me. All three of them, including John, they're, there, they're sleeping twice. Finally, Jesus gives up on them in, in terms of getting him to pray and just says, all right, you may as well sleep because this is going to be a rough night. And then they all get scattered, but remember when Jesus is finally on the cross and he looks down from the cross and he says, oh, John, this is Mary, my mom. Take care of her. John's the one he trusted. So my friends, John is an incredible picture. He is relationally tied to Jesus. He's been changed by his relationship with Jesus. And before we even get into the message this morning, let me ask you this question. Have you? Have you been changed by the time that you spend with Jesus? John's a great example of one who has changed. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, the first thing we see about John is that he is a servant of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Does anyone, else have, does anyone have a different word than servant in their, in their scriptures this morning? We also have a different word there. Some of the older translations will say bond servant. And so uh, this concept of bond servant, it wasn't simply that, that John is going to serve Jesus. We're learning that John is devoting his life to Jesus. The word there is that he is completely controlled by Jesus. He has held nothing back, and everything belongs to the Lord. When we see, see the word bond servant, you get, get it in your head that there's not a part of my life that is mine. It is all, all of my life has been entrusted, in this case, to Jesus. It's all his. Nothing held back from me. Remember, Exodus chapter 21 explains the, the process of what it looks like to, to be a lifelong servant and to devote yourself to being a lifetime. And I'm just going to use the word. It's an awkward word, but it's a biblical word. But, but being a lifetime slave to Jesus Okay, and so that's what that, that's what we are all in, called to do, right? Revelation is written to the servants, the bond servants. That's all those who have given their life over to Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you're coming to the point where you are giving all of your life. So Exodus chapter twenty-one, there's laws about these bond servants that bond servants would serve for six years. And after six years, they would be given the freedom to go. You can go. You've done your work. After six years, you had to do this because of your your social caste, or not caste, but where you were in life. But after six years, you can go. And there's the door. You may freely go where you'd like to go. But if the slave plainly says, listen, I love my master my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be, listen, his slave forever. So John is a bondservant. That is, he is given up 
all of his life, controlled to the Lord. He is a bondservant forever, willingly, and because of love. Is that where you're at? Because that's the first thing we see about John. And when we are reading 1 John and we're studying 1 John in the coming days, I want you to have in your heart, John is a bond slave. He has given every inch of his life over to Christ Jesus, willingly for all of his days, holding nothing back, and it's because of love, his love for Jesus, that he gave his life in that respect. Man, John was invited to follow after Jesus. We've already looked at that. And uh, and a servant knows the plans. So so, um, John knew the plans of Jesus in part, but he was growing in understanding of them all the time. Listen, if you're going to wait until all of the questions are answered about this servant, until you know what he wants for your life, everything, you know all of the details, you know what it's going to look like, can I just tell you, you're never going to be a bondservant. If you're going to wait till you have all the answers. John was in the boat with his dad, with his life planned out, his name on the side of the boat, figuratively speaking. Maybe it was literal, I don't know. His name on the side of the boat, his career mapped out for him. Jesus shows up and says, come on, follow after me. And knowing just a little, he followed Jesus. I'm talking to you young person right now. If you are going to wait until it's all mapped out and you have all of your questions answered, you're not going to follow Jesus. There's going to be lots of unanswered questions. There's going to be lots of growing and understanding as you go. There's going to be lots of aha moments. John had a ton of aha moments. John chapter 6, he's writing. Jesus has just fed a large crowd of people. And the crowd of people is coming back for more food. And Jesus says to them, okay, listen, now, I'm the bread of life. By the way, in John's gospel, we get such an amazing picture of Jesus. It's different than the others. But when we hear, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and life, all of those I am statements we get from John, who spent time with Jesus. He wrote all about him. But in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you're going to actually come and have a part of me, uh, you're going to you, you're gonna have to eat my body. And so the crowd starts to thin out. You can imagine. No, listen, we're here for the actual bread. We're here for the Big Mac. We're here for the free food. And so here... John is helping us see this picture of Jesus, and eventually Jesus turns to the disciples as the crowd is leaving, and a bunch of even close followers, disciples, were leaving him and says, are you, are you going to leave too? John's writing this. He's growing in his understanding. And John says, listen, well, Peter says it, but John records it. You have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? There's nowhere else to turn. 
And I'm telling you, John is growing in his understanding. In John chapter 6, that's early in his writings. He's growing in his understanding of who this Jesus is. He's growing in his understanding that he is the king and he is the Lord. He's growing in his understanding that he is the Messiah. And my friends, you and I are going to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is day by day. Young person, middle-aged person, newer follower of Christ. You don't have all the answers. You're surprised about some answers. That's where we're all at. None of us have all the answers. But we are sure of who we have believed. We have believed Jesus. He's a servant. Servant is somebody who knows the plans of his master and gets busy in carrying them out. Now, the the plans of Jesus Christ are to build his church. We're going to see that in this passage. Jesus wants to build his church. He wants to allow the world around us to know who he is by the witness and strength of his church. I will build my church. That's the promise he made. He did not say, I will build other things. He said, I'll build my church. And so, guys... Uh, we, his servants, as we are devoting ourselves and completely controlled, we are seeing what he's doing and we are joining him in what he's doing in, in his priority. A servant sees what the master is doing and gets busy in carrying out those plans. Note that John bore witness to the word of God. He cares so deeply about what the word says. We're going to see in our study of 1 John that John isn't just this person who says, well, this is what the theology says and this is what the doctrine says. It's really important. But all doctrine and theology has to be practical. And So John says, if it's true that Jesus is Lord of Lords, then this should be true in your life. He's the one that says, what companionship has darkness with light? He's the one that, that speaks to us about connecting ethics, or excuse me, uh, doctrine with ethics. So he's going to help us really understand as we look at 1 John, because Jesus is king of kings, this is the implication in your life and in my life. Okay, so it's really crucial that we get that. That's what John is all about. He loves the person of Jesus because in knowing and loving and devoting himself to the person of Jesus, his life has changed. His life is radically transformed by what Christ has done for him. A servant bears witness to the word of God. And he bears witness also to the testimony of Jesus Christ. John 21, one of my favorite, I I can't say that really because everything's my favorite, but I love this verse. The very last verse of John says this. This is how interested John is in the person and work of Jesus. He loves him this much. He ends with this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Don't you love that poetry? If we wrote down everything Jesus did, could the world hold the books? This is how great and glorious Jesus is. He goes on and says something similar about how great Jesus is in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, where he says this about Jesus, I am writing these things, excuse me, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote them. So, you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's all about Jesus, and the servant is all about the work of his master. So here's the bottom line. Believe John. 
believe John, he was close to Jesus. And then use his experience as a servant to the Most High to gauge your experience as a servant to the Most High. Do you recall, your, do you recall the call, the invitation that Christ placed in your life? Come follow me. Is that written down somewhere? Is it written down for your wife or for your husband? Is it written down for yourself that you can recall the day that, that you heard Jesus call to you and bring you close to him? It should be written down someplace. I really encourage you to consider the call of God on your life to be his servant, to leave all of your rights behind and give yourself over to him, holding nothing back, being completely controlled by him. You have a wholehearted devotion to, 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 to trust him. You have a, no, a growing knowledge of Christ Jesus and God's plan based on your experience in and with him. Do you have a conscious understanding of your forfeiture of your rights and your embracing of your role as servant? You have an increasing confidence in God's word that this is all true of servants. And then lastly, before we move on to this next point, we, we remain focused on the necessity of things to come. In verse 1 of chapter of Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. There's so much in that verse, but let me just say this. You know if you're a servant. You know if this book is addressed to you. Okay? This book is addressed to the servants of Jesus Christ. And the things that are coming are things that must take place. And they must soon take place. Look at the end of verse 3. The time is near. John's condition and John's situation is not real pretty, as we're going to look at in just a minute. But in his ugly and hard situation, he remains focused on the promise that he has from his master that Jesus will soon return. And that word soon, some of us could pick at it. Well, it's been 2,000 years. He still hasn't returned. But listen, if you're going to be a servant of the Most High, you are not going to doubt the promises that your master has made to you. Your promise, your, say, your master has made the promise that he will soon return. And it is incumbent on the servants of the Lord to not lose track of that promise in the hardness and difficulty of life. It's so easy to do, isn't it? The whole book of Revelation, we're not going to get into it, but the whole book of Revelation is addressed to the real challenges of the church. Persecution. Actually, one of the biggest challenges they faced was affluence. So much money, they don't need Jesus. They had other kinds of trials and troubles. They were growing cold in their heart. They were forgetting the promises, right? But... Here, we're reminded that John is just saying, look, let's not forget the promises that our, our master has made to us. So there's this necessity and there's this nearness of the Lord Jesus. He's coming, and he's coming soon. Well, not only is John a servant of the Lord, he is a prophet of the Lord. And we see that in verse 3, that he wrote this prophecy. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but there were not a lot of apostles, that is, the 12 inner, you know, the people that followed after Christ, that became prophets, ones who wrote a, 
uh, a word that they received from God for the church at the time. It was only, really only John. There's not a lot of prophets that we see in the midst of these apostles. A prophet would often reveal that which was previously unknown. And yet by the same token, a prophet would also often simply remind everybody of what God has already said. In the Old Testament, most of the prophecies were the prophet coming and saying, now guys, uh, the promises that God made and the covenant that he made with us, he's serious about that. And we are faithless about that. What is going on with us? Right? A prophet usually underscores and reminds the people of God about promises and the covenant that God has already made. So Jesus, when he left, said, I will be back. And Revelation gives us some Im- implication and some more insight into what it's going to look like when he comes back. But the, the whole of it is this. He will return. There will be a day when we will be reckoned and reconciled to him. And, and this passage, Revelation, is so difficult to many to understand, especially those who are not servants of the Most High. If you're not a servant of God, you can't get this. If you haven't come to the place where you've released and given everything over to God, Revelation is going to be a jumbled mess because the natural person can't get that. But the Spirit in the servants of God help us to understand. So John is this prophet of God. And as a prophet, he speaks a message. I think he is so astounded and amazed at the privilege of getting to write down this vision for his friends. He, he is uh, telling the people around him of the, what is to come and reminding them that God is going to keep his promises. To the seven churches, it says in verse 4. Look what he says to the seven churches. We're going to talk again about, about the times in just a minute. But he says, guys, grace to you and peace from him who is and, and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to God the Father. The eternal one. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the one who set time in, in, in action. He's the one who's going to wrap it up at the end. He was. God the Father is in the moment. And God the Father is to come. And so this is a reference to, to God the Father. Note the reference then next to the Holy Spirit. So not only is this grace to you and peace from God the Father, it's from the Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The number seven there is a number of completion and perfection. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He goes on from there and he talks about behold, Verse 7, he is coming. And so it makes sense as he talks about Father and then Spirit and then Son. He's talking about Jesus and the whole rest of Revelation is about Jesus and his second coming. And so that's kind of why Jesus is third in the list there because from there he's going to go on and talk about Jesus. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Guys, Jesus' second coming is going to be glorious. It's going to be in the clouds. It's going to be set up for for beautiful and profound and powerful re-entry. Remember, the same way he left, he will return. Continuing in verse 7, every eye will see him. 
You know that Jesus' second coming is going to be a worldwide event. There won't be one eye that misses this. Everyone will see and understand the amazing power and the life and the promise and the truth that God has spoken all these years. People who have doubted it with science, people who have doubted it with philosophy, people who have doubted it with sin, people who just didn't want to receive him, every eye will see him when he returns. So I'm just writing to remind us of that. Even those who pierced him. Now, there was one or two soldiers that pierced him. Uh, we're not talking here about literally the ones who pierced him. We're talking about those that put in plan the, the, the scheme to pierce him. Unbelieving Jews, their eyes will be opened when Jesus returns and they will see who he really is. And, and then it goes on from there and it says, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And so unbelieving Gentiles, those who have rejected him, will see who he is. They will see him in his glory when he returns. And John the prophet is just writing these things down. Just want to remind you, this is what's coming. This is what's coming our way. And those verses are meant to sort of be a quick summary of the rest of Revelation, which again, we're not going to look at today. What do we learn about John here? We learn that when life gets difficult, he remains focused on what he's been taught by his master. He believes the promises of God. He doesn't doubt them. He embraces them. He knows that Christ is going to return. And we're going to look at him. John's situation here is not very pretty. It's a a really difficult thing. But here's the question that we we will check into in 1 John. Can love and justice coexist? Unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles are going to weep and wail because they rejected him. They're going to see him in his glory for who he is. But how do we pull together love and justice? We can only do it in Jesus Christ. And as we move through 1 John, we're going to see a God who loves and who has put out a cry for people to come to him and has made a provision for the forgiveness of sins. He's the one who can forgive us. And we're also going to see that God is going to hold responsible those who reject him. And their eyes will be open when he returns. And John is just reminding us of these things. Can love and justice coexist? Indeed, they coexist in Jesus Christ. So not only do we see that John's a servant and John's a prophet, John is, he is also a worshiper. He's the worshiper of the Lord. He worships the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. I, John, and let me just start, stop there. John rarely talks about himself. In the gospel of John, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loves. In 1 John, we don't see much reference to him. In fact, there's debate over whether he wrote it. He did write it, but we don't see a lot of reference to him. But here, we get to a revelation, this special moment, this incredible vision that John is about to tell us about, and he wants you to know, man, this is, this is his life. This is his life honor, his big privilege. His, his, as he looks back, his most important moment. So I, John, I'm the one writing this, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Can I, can I just stop here? Let me tell you John's story for a minute. Obviously, in his early days, he followed Jesus. He followed him for many years. Jesus, after Jesus left, John stayed in Jerusalem and, and worked with the church there for many years. In fact, uh, probably until about A.D. 67, about 30 years, he's in Jerusalem. Then he moves from Jerusalem and continues to minister near the region where he's writing this in the area of Ephesus. So about another 30 years. So, I mean, you don't have to do too much math to figure out John is 85 or 90 years old when he wrote all of his books, but it's definitely Revelation. So as a 90-year-old guy, he's reflecting now on his life, and now there is such wicked and evil emperors in power in the world that he isn't even writing this from the area near Ephesus. Because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God, he has been put out at Patmos. You guys remember years and years ago, Australia was the place where we sent prisoners. The world sent prisoners. Britain sent prisoners. Well, Patmos is the island where uh, Ephesus sent prisoners. And so, whether they were political prisoners, they sent them out there, and it was about a 40-mile you know, boat ride out there, and they dropped them off, and so everybody on the island was another prisoner, political prisoner. As we look at archaeological digs years later, we're finding that there were temples to, to foreign gods. It was not pretty. It wasn't like all the Christians went out there. no. It was all political prisoners, and most of them were godless and pagan. So John, as a 90-year-old man, is banished to a godless place where he is alone in the world, and look at what he emphasizes while he's alone in the world. You are my partner. You're my partner in tribulations. Guys, when, when we look around and we want people right near us and we want people to do it our way and we want people to serve us, we have these high expectations on what they should do. We, get, we feel so alone in the world. We feel like no one is helping us. We feel like it's all up to us. Do you not love the fact that here he is actually alone but emphasizing the fellowship he has because of Christ Jesus? His expectations were that Jesus had overcome. His expectation is that we have commonality because we're persecuted for our faith in Jesus. He didn't have high expectations. Where are you people? Why aren't you helping me more? Why couldn't you do more? Oh, man, he looked at the the people that he had served with and, and knew that they were persecuted in their own way and that they were going through hard times in their own way. But what we hold together is Jesus And so rather than isolating himself from them further and emphasizing what he would have expected of them, he talks about Jesus. And he feels such a tight connection with them that he talks about their fellowship and he talks about their partnership. Is that how you look at the people around you? You have a little secret list for what others should have been doing for you? and your hour of need, and your difficult day. Listen, servant of the Lord, that's not how they learn to walk. They learn to go, okay, all of us have our hardship. 
And so I'm going to raise my eyes above what I thought somebody else should do, and I'm going to fix my eyes on what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And in that, we have fellowship. In that, we have partnership. In that, we have togetherness. And so as he writes this message, I am so thankful. Here's another, another little tidbit that we learned from him. John writes to encourage those with whom he has partnership when he himself has diminished ministry opportunity. I thought as I got older, I would have more opportunity to teach. I thought as I got older, I would have more influence in the kingdom and what's happening in the world. He, none of those words are spoken from John. Not one of them. Because when a master puts you on an island like Patmos, when he puts you in a position where you have no ministry opportunities that you can perceive, the servant never complains. No complaining. You in a place where your ministry opportunities are far less than you ever thought they would be at this point? It doesn't look at all like you thought it should? The life that you had all marked out and dreamed out, you feel like you are on a barren island alone? Listen, look to Jesus in that moment. Your servant isn't, your, your, your service isn't for big numbers. Your service isn't for big influence. Your service is for him. And look what, G, look what John did. I, John, your brother, your partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. Incidentally, why was he there? On account of the word of God. He was not there because the entire government is against Christians. Now, the entire government is against Christians. They were finding reasons to blame Christians for everything. John didn't bring it up. He knows that over the government that is against Christians is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is for his servants. Why talk about a government that finds ways to blame Christians for everything when you can focus on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Why even bring that up? Well, John doesn't. John doesn't say anything about it. Oh, you can blame. There's double standards. There's this. There's that. He doesn't say any of those things. You know what he says here? Uh, I was on the island not because of the government or because people hate Christians. I was on the word on, or I was on the island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why I was out there. Verse ten, I love. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and let's just stop there. He's a man by himself on the island of Patmos. It's the Lord's day. He is old. He is weak. He could in his flesh be discouraged. Things aren't turning out the way he thought they should turn out. It's an ugly scenario. And where do we find John on the Lord's day? Worshiping the Lord by himself. Now, ladies, I'm going to have you close your ears for a minute. I'm going to look at the men, and I'm talking to myself first. Without any coercion, in your most discouraged moment, when no one looks, are you spending time with God? Phone off. Screen dark. Bible open. 
Because that is your personal discipline. That's what servants do. They wait on the master. They wait on the master. I wonder if the book of Revelation needed to be written today and you and I were in a situation where we were weak and our ministry was smaller than we thought it should be and not what we thought it would look like at all, I wonder if the Lord would find faithful men alone on the Lord's Day with their Bibles open, meeting with Him. Now, women should do it too. John... On the Lord's Day. Now, this is the, one of the first times the, the, the phrase the Lord's Day is, is used. Basically, that means the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday. Okay? So that's why we worship on the Lord's Day today. It, on the Sundays. Because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so here he was thinking about, man, Sunday. I could think about all my ministry things that aren't going right. I could think about how uh, the government continually and always blames Christians for everything. I could think about how it's so dark. Oh, my kids. I mean, what are my kids going to do? How are they going to? No, no, none of that. On the Lord's Day, before the Lord, in the Spirit, worshiping Him for who He is. What a beautiful example He is as a worshiper of the Lord. Well, note what He sees as He is uh, meeting with the Lord. Now, uh, it should not be expected that anyone who goes and tries to meet with the Lord is going to have an experience like this. The experience that John has now is supernatural. Uh, it is possible to have a supernatural experience today with God, right? But it's rare, and it's not something we, we uh, uh, try to contrive. But John has an experience that he is to write down. And it's almost like, like indescribable for him. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And what he saw was Jesus, and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. We're going to see in 1 John, I think I mentioned this already, that he emphasizes what we see, what we hear. He emphasizes even what we touch. We're going to see that in just a minute too. What we, what we actually experience with Jesus, because he loves Jesus so much. All right, so I was in the Spirit, and then verse 11, I heard this voice. It was like a trumpet saying, write what you are about to see to the seven churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Can I just take a minute? This is why I love the church so much. I love the church. Not enough. I'm growing in my love for the church. I want to love her. I want to love us. I want to love what God's doing here more and more. But on a day of difficulty and trouble, John turns and he sees Jesus standing, we find out later, standing in the midst of his imperfect, hurting churches. See that? Jesus is right in the midst. How does he describe them? They're golden. He values his church so much. He loves his church. How does he see them? Light giving. They're lampstands. They produce light for the world. Do you know that what God is doing in this congregation is to put a lamp on a stand to give light to the world, to draw people to himself? 
Later, he talks about these angels that he's in the midst of as well. And he holds the angels in his hands. He's talking about the elders in the church. God works through the local church. And he's building his church. And so that John turned and saw Jesus in the moment, standing in the midst of his golden lampstands. You see that he protects his churches. He empowers his churches. He purifies his churches. You see what he, he sees them? He's got these eyes of fire to purify. He directs his church leaders, these angels. And you see that tongue with the double-edged sword. He protects his church from the onslaughts of the world around them. John saw one who was like the son of man. We don't have time to go into that, but we could have a whole message just on that phrase. The son of man is a direct reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 where Daniel, in a vision, sees Jesus, the Son of Man, and he is exalted in a position of supreme power, everything at his disposal. And that's where, for the first time in the Bible, the phrase Son of Man is used. Revelation chapter 1, John says, I see him, Son of Man. He's talking about Daniel 7. He's talking about glory. He's talking about all authority. He's talking about risen He's talking about reigning forever. He's talking about the Son of Man there in Revelation chapter 1. John's reaction. James McDonald is a pastor in the greater Chicago area that I listen to, and I like to listen to his podcast from time to time when I'm on a run or something. Uh, But he talks about going in the presence of God, and, and he says it this way. When you get in the presence of God, Get as low as you can, as fast as you can. And that's exactly what happens here. John turns and sees this glorious Jesus. And do you see what happened? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his waist. He goes on from there. And then down verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Done. So we we live in the world that wants to make Jesus our friend, our best friend, our BFF. And there's no doubt that Jesus is our friend. But my friends, Jesus is the risen, glorified Messiah. He is the one in whom all authority resides. When you get in his presence, there's no hand shaking and fist bumping. There is getting as low as you can, as fast as you can, as though dead. Every person in scriptures that comes into contact with Jesus gets as low as they can, as fast as they can, out of fear in their heart and out of perception of who this, who this Christ is truly is. You know who he is? I'm still learning, and I know you are too, how great and how glorious and how powerful he is. But John, as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, he just gets low before him. Uh, Getting low before the Lord is a position of submission. It's as if he is going back to his commitment to be a servant and saying, Lord, there's nothing held back. He is laying before him and saying, Lord, there's nothing held back. Nothing held back. That's what worship really is. 
I ascribed worth, I ascribed worth to your name by my life. That's the heart of a worshiper. Giving glory to God. He's afraid. He's afraid. And, and so as he lays in fear, there's an appropriate fear of God. But listen, Jesus places his right hand on John. This isn't the first time he's done that. Again, the emphasis is on touching too, right? Jesus ran ahead, excuse me, John ran ahead of Peter so that he would get to the tomb first to see where he lay. He saw these things. He smelled these things. He touched these things. And so here, John is before the Lord Jesus and the Lord lays his hand on him and lifts him up just like he did in Matthew chapter 17. You remember the transfiguration? John is low as he can, as fast as he can. And, uh, and Peter's over there saying, well, maybe we should build some, uh, let's build some altars. Let's build some altars. And Jesus places his hand in that passage on John's shoulder and says, be not afraid. And Jesus places his hand in Revelation chapter 1 on John's shoulder and says, don't be afraid. Get up. I want you not to be focused on your diminished ministry. I want you not to be focused on your enslavement on this island. I don't want you to be focused on what the world seems to be doing to Christians. I want you to be focused on me. And with your focus on Jesus, you set it in your heart to encourage the churches. And that's exactly what John did. It's possible that when John thought he was having his least amount of effectiveness in writing Revelation, that he had his most fruitful ministry of his life. It's possible for you too. I thought I was doing nothing. I thought it was a dead end. It was just years of raising two kids. It was all it was. I just felt so trapped. Listen, Mom, you're at home, and you feel like you are having no ministry influence whatsoever, and there's a kid constantly under your watch. You may be having your most impactful ministry of your entire life. In fact, I would say it this way. You probably are. I'm older now and there's an empty nest and I'm looking for the new thing. What am I supposed to give myself over to? I feel so useless. Listen, man, devote yourself to worshiping the Lord. And it's very possible when you feel the most useless that God is going to use your life in the most profound way that he has ever used your life. Here's my encouragement to you. You better be taking notes. You better be writing it down. When no one is looking and no one is keeping track of you, empty nest mom, empty nest dad, you better be meeting with the Lord privately, alone, screens off, phone off, spending time face-to-face with the Lord. Because when you are doing those things, God takes what you think is insignificant and he multiplies it in ways that you could never imagine. This is what we're going to learn from John in these coming days. We're going to learn that the highest identity in your life is to be a servant of the Lord. We're going to learn that when it seems like the world around us is doing nothing but finding fault with Christians, that we trust the prophecies of God, Jesus will soon return, and every eye will see him, and every tongue will confess. 
And we, in our private times, when no one is looking, we are going to be in the scriptures, and we are going to be meeting with the Lord. And when we see him face to face, we're going to get as low as we can, as fast as we can, and assume a position of submission before him and say, okay, Lord, whatever you want. And when ministry opportunities are not what we thought they would be, we're going to say, even so, amen. So guys, I'm really looking forward to the study. It's going to change my life. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that you hear us. We're so thankful that when it seems like the world's coming apart, we hold on to the promises that you give us. We're so thankful, Lord, that, that you have called us to this high place. And with John, we've like come to the place of the, the, the owl through the ear and said, okay, because of love, I commit my life to serve you all the rest of my days. When my ministries and when my opportunities to serve seem great, I will be faithful. And when I feel like I'm on the Isle of Patmos, I will not question you. I will continue to meet with you and hear from you and love you. We commit to you, Lord, the study of 1 John, and we commit to you even what we learned about the Apostle John today. May you use it in our lives to encourage us that we would walk with you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.